0: hello and welcome to close talking the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from cardboard box productions incorporated i am co-host jack rossiter munley and with my good friend connor mcnamara stratton we read a poem talk about the poem and read the poem again before we get into today's selection a quick note that If you like
1: what we do here at close talking and have a spare minute of your time it would mean the world
0: to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on apple Podcasts. those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners and if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one you can
1: send us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com
0: and you can also find us on social media on twitter the show is at close talking I am at Jack Rossiter Munn and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry. And on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash Close Talking. We also have a website, CloseTalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show. And Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed. And if you go to CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Jack Rossiter mundley
1: And I'm your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton.
0: And on today's show, we are thrilled to be joined by a very special guest, Noor Hindi. Noor, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks so much.
0: Uh, Very quickly, for any of our listeners who are not familiar with Noor, number one, you should be, because back on episode 117, we talked about her incredible poem, Fuck Your Lecture on Craft, My People Are Dying, which I'm sure we'll touch on some today because it is in the collection that we are gathered to discuss. Um, But she is a poet, essayist, and journalist who got a BA and an MFA in poetry from the University of Akron. And I know all you literary folks out there are thinking Akron, rubber city, rubber capital of the world, home of Rita Dove. Well, we're here to tell you that the real news is that Nora Hindi went to the University of Akron. Um, she was a 2021 Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Poetry Fellowship recipient from the Poetry Foundation and has had poems and essays in all sorts of places, Adroit Journal, American Poetry Review, Poetry Magazine, many, many more. Um, and has a new collection, Dear God, Dear Bones, Dear Yellow, coming out on May 31st from Haymarket Books. So obviously we are super thrilled to be joined by Noor Hindi. Very quickly before we get into the poem that we have gathered to discuss from the collection, since I went to journalism school and Noor is, in addition to being an incredible poet, a wonderful journalist, I thought it might be cool for the three of us to go around and talk about either a journalist or a piece of journalism that we want to shout out for uh, a wider audience to get more people to, to know about something that we've been learning from or, or vibing with recently. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss it over to <laughs> Nora as our guest. What is a, a journalist or a piece of journalism that, uh, that you recommend?
2: Thank you so much, Jack. I feel like I've been, uh, feeding my love of, uh, investigative reporting and journalism in general through podcasts lately, cause I'm not actively reporting right now. And, um, so I'm going to actually selfishly recommend, um, reveal, which is based in California. And I just finished their, like, I think it's an eight part series, Mississippi, goddamn, um, And it's, it was really, really amazing. And then uh, a reporter there that I really love is um, Oda Begato. And she uh, wrote this amazing piece about children disappearing in the U.S. immigration system. Uh, And so those are two pieces that I think I've been, uh, well, specifically with Oda, everything she puts out is great. But then the episode by Reveal, the six-part series was just really great too. So
0: That's yeah. Reveal is an incredible, incredible group. Connor, what do you got? Yeah,
1: I would have to recommend. Um, so I'm, I'm in Minneapolis and there is, uh, the Minneapolis public teachers are, um, as well as the educational support, uh, professionals are on strike. They're entering their third week of the strike. They haven't striked in struck anyway, um, 50 years. And I would just like to plug the Sahan Journal, which is um, a local independent um, outlet here. Um, And specifically, Becky Z. Dernbach has been following um, and covering the strike throughout. Um, And in particular, she's done a really good job of just kind of covering the whole scope of the strike and talking with families and teachers and sort of like giving a sense of you know, um, what it's been like for a variety of communities, um, as the strike has sort of moved into the third week. So that would be, uh, my recommendation.
0: Very cool. Yeah. Sahan Journal is an incredible resource. Their coverage of Minneapolis is, yeah, I mean, it's invaluable. I know this is, so this is someone who I've mentioned before on the podcast, and I may have even used this piece as an example. It's not the newest piece, but I really admire Liz Lenz, who matches incredible reporting with incredible writing. Uh, And I think her profile of Tucker Carlson is a masterpiece. Um, I have read it more times than I can count. I recommend it whenever I get the chance. Uh, It's called The Mystery of Tucker Carlson. And it opens with what I think is one of the most incredible lines for a profile. Tucker Carlson is shouting when he tells me he isn't shouting. Um, And I believe that the experience of doing this, I may be wrong, but I believe it was the inspiration for uh, the one of the inspirations for the title of her newsletter, Men Yell at Me, which is a a really great newsletter. So yeah, Liz Lenz and her profile on Tucker Carlson from September of 2018, it never gets old, which is pretty sad. But (laughs) yeah, I, I return to it very often. That is a lot of really good journalism. I hope folks check out some or all of those. Um, and with that, I think it's time that we talk about some poetry. So uh, what, as is our uh, our process, we have the guests select a poem, and Nora, you selected one of the poems from your new collection. In fact, the first poem in the collection. Um, sure. So talk a little bit about that poem, and then uh, let's hear it
2: yeah thank you so much um yeah something that i have uh actually that was inserted inserted later in the collection is i wanted there to be a sense of not just uh me looking at the world but also the sense of the world looking back at me and me looking at me and it's the first poem in the collection which I feel like really starts off, um, I wanted to start off with a really strong eye uh, and I wanted it to start off in this place of migration at an airport. Um, And so I'm gonna read the poem and then we can talk more about it. So excited to be here. Thank you both. Uh, Self-interrogation. At the airport terminal, a woman is crying. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, I. Need to focus on something besides the rush of migration, light so loud, the unending sound of a newscaster's voice. Dear God, dear bones, dear mother, please forgive me. I want to call in dead. Last week, there was a child in a yellow dress reading a poem. For minutes on end, I could not be indifferent to anything. Not the grass dying yellow, not the bombs twisting limbs, not the cages, not the... Yes, there is a woman crying at terminal six. Yes, I use a newspaper to cover my eyes. Yes, I think of the child the tiny silver heart she placed in my palm, how I threw it in the trash seconds later, but I promise, I promise, I promise I meant it as an act of survival, maybe love. Thank you. Thank you.
0: You mentioned wanting to make sure there was this element of sort of self-examination in the collection, and the way you are introducing it, was this poem written a little bit later in the process of putting the collection together? How does it kind of fit in the, in the lineage of poems getting put together in this?
2: Yeah, so it's kind of wild because I think I wrote this, um, I wrote this on my way back from a workshop with the Radius of Arab American Writers, Rawi, and I was coming back from Los Angeles, traveling to Ohio, And I remember, I think it was weeks before, I was literally at a reading, at a poetry reading, and I don't know what other historical event was happening in the U.S., which has been the theme for like the last forever, right? Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Something was happening, and I was at a poetry reading, and there was this beautiful moment where this little girl in a yellow dress went up with her father and she read a poem. And it was one of those moments that really snap you back into focus. Right. And this was pre pandemic when people were gathering together to poetry readings. And there was so much beauty in that. I felt like it was almost like a church to me going to these weekly poetry readings. And, um, there was so much harshness too outside of that room that was happening politically, socially. And then there was this intimacy in the room that was happening. And I, this girl went up and she read this poem and it was so beautiful. And she was so excited about poetry and so enthusiastic about it and so shy, but also really brave in front of all these adults. And at the end of the reading, she gave me this like little yellow heart. And if there's anything that you know about me, it's that I love the color yellow. It's a recurring theme in the book. It's a color of of joy and heartbreak and hope for me. And so um, that's where the poem sort of came from. And in in terms of lineage, um, I think the earliest poem in the book, it comes later. But this one, everything written in this book, I think, was written between like Let's see, I graduated in the middle of the pandemic. So that was 2020. So like 2019, 2020. And then that summer of 2020, like May and June. And so yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but I tried.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. I wanna, I'm curious to know more about yellow and its significance to you. There's, you know, as you mentioned, there's yellow throughout the collection. There's also a lot of sunflowers that kind of show up throughout it? Where, when did that connection to yellow start for you and maybe a little bit more about what it means?
2: Yeah. Thank you for asking that. So for me, I, I lost my cousin pretty young, who was, I spent a lot of time with growing up and she loved the color yellow. You know, she passed away when she was 13, a month after she turned 13. And, uh, it was, She was really young and full of life still, right? Like this is the beginning of your sort of adolescence. And so I did not realize at the time when she passed away that her favorite color was yellow. I actually forgot her favorite color, which is a wild thing when you think about the things that we forget about the people we lose and also the things we do to not forget. But I remember for months and years sort of coming back to sunflowers, coming back to the color yellow. And one day I was sitting with a family member and she was like, are you, do you love this color because of Xana? And I was like, oh, I didn't like why. And she told me. And so it felt like this really, for lack of a better word, magical moment and like intimate moment. And That's why the color yellow sort of shows up and that wasn't purposeful. Someone pointed it out to me. My thesis advisor had pointed it out to me and I just kind of flew with it after that. Um, And like I said, I think it's a really, I think it's a color that embodies a lot of joy despite the darkness that often engulfs us as people and as a nation. So that's where that comes from.
0: I, I relate to that a little bit. I have a friend who is, who loves the idea of uh, yellow kitchens and the idea of mm-hmm. like a kitchen as a gathering place and making food and a place for family. Yes. Um, and like in their childhood home, there was like uh, right next to the kitchen, it was like open to where everyone would sit. So it was always this very communal thing. And that kitchen itself wasn't yellow, but like the idea of turning the kitchen space into a yellow space was always really, really a resonant thing for them. Um, yes. I helped them paint a kitchen in one of their apartments yellow. Like it, it was a whole, a whole like <laughs> thing of a piece for them.
2: That is so beautiful. Yeah. It's funny. Cause the, the first thing I did when I moved into my home was paint the living room yellow
0: amazing yeah
2: and I say this and people kind of like give me a look and it's it's not a bright yellow it's uh it's a very like warm yellow and the intimacy of this like small living room and these like really warm colored walls um I loved and then we also ended up painting the front door bright yellow and so um I just wanted to be I just wanted to like a constant reminder that joy exists, that love exists, that we can find warmth in even like the harshest places. And I love the image of the sunflower sort of opening itself up to the sunlight.
0: That's really beautiful. Um, sort of related. I'm curious about this. There's like uh, obviously yellow is in the title of the book and there's sort of the echo of the title in this poem self-interrogation dear god dear bones dear mother is what's in the poem uh and I'm sort of curious about the connection there
2: yeah so this was um I think poets have like months where they are just absolutely obsessed with a certain thing and those obsessions naturally come up in our work and I don't know what it was but for for months, I just kept writing these epistolary poems where I was addressing a specific thing or person. And uh, it it actually, it became really annoying, but (laughs) I couldn't stop stop doing it. It just became like whenever I got stuck in a poem, I would like address something and then the poem would pick back up. Um, And I think this was the first poem where that, where that happened. Um, And I ended up changing mother to yellow because I don't think my mom makes much of a footprint in this book so as much as yellow does and selfishly I just wanted yellow to be part of the cover of the book and the title
0: (laughs) it sounds like it needed to be there Mm -hmm. I love that um
1: yeah and now I'm thinking of a gosh not a good poem that I wrote in Collagen, hopefully, will never be found. But um, there was uh, uh, mac and cheese and canned corn were uh, big, big yellow images of home that stood out. Um, which canned corn is not the most joyful thing, but I do, I do think it's. <laughs> Slightly underrated. So yeah, I
2: cheese though, too. I mean, like, that's there's a lot of joy of mac and cheese. <laughs> that
1: that is true. Yeah. Like the
2: versatility of it. Oh
1: my god. Endless joy. You can
2: make it, or you can like really take your time with mac and cheese. I, I love the versatility of getting as complicated and as easy as you want with mac and cheese. It's great.
0: I... Mac and cheese has become a mm-hmm. science in this household over time. There's a very <laughs> A recipe was unearthed at some point that has become like the go-to and it is, (laughs) it's a little bit time intensive, but it's worth it. I love it. Yeah. I've never, what you just
1: said about mac and cheese, I don't think I've ever agreed with anything more in my life, I think. Um, (laughs) And even though I am uh, an apologetic vegan these days, when I come home, usually I sneak uh, now my parents have figured it out, but I I've been, I'll, I'll admit it on air, but I, I do sneak, uh, some homemade mac and cheese, uh, from the fridge.
0: I had without... no idea you were doing this you sneaky dog.
1: I know, <laughs> I know it's, it's not good. Um, well it is, it's quite good. It's quite
2: good. There is excellent. I think vegan mac and cheese I've had too. Just there is, out. there is
1: no, it's, um, well, I mean, cashews are a wonder soak those cream it up butternut squash does good things with for mac and cheese kind of thing now it's yeah well we could talk about that for much <laughs> much longer um but <laughs> yeah I guess um well I have like a million questions but um I was thinking about yeah what you were saying about the the deers and the epistolary and then also like wanting to lead um the the book with a strong eye was so striking to me um this poem is so fascinating because there's like you're at the airport terminal there's kind of like part of the the voice of the poem seems like it's kind of that like uh like it's imitating the voice over the, you know, please report to Terminal 6, or like, you know, yes, there is a woman crying at Terminal 6. And then, but then the, anyway, it's like, and there's, you know, the the voice is like, interrupted many times, you know, excuse me, excuse me, I need to focus. Um, And it's this very interesting, like, on the one hand, you're so right that the the voice is like so powerful, um, and yet it's also being kind of—it's the—it's that self-interrogation, I guess, where it's being interrupted. And the, you know, the woman at the the top of the poem,
0: mm-hmm.
1: kind of by the end, it's like you know, there's that great turn where it's like, yes, there is a woman crying at Terminal Six. Yes, I, I use a newspaper to cover my eyes. Where the the poem, at least the way that I was reading it sort of reveals the speaker to be, at least in some ways, the woman that is being described in the beginning of the poem. Um, And so there's this kind of like tension of a, I don't know, of like many voices that are interrupting and conflicting um, and somewhat external sometimes. So I was just I don't know if that is completely off base, but I was just curious, like how, how you were thinking about like the way voice and interruptions and, and external and internal were like working in this poem. If that makes sense.
2: Yeah, completely. I mean, I think it's really, I think it's really difficult to move through this world without a constant interruption. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. There's the monologue happening in our head, there's the subconscious, there's the noises around us, and then there's the news, right, which is always so loud, and I think mostly I think in this poem there's a desire to escape, right, and an inability to escape, like you could walk away or turn away from a source of pain, and then you could turn to another direction and find another source of pain, and then you could turn toward yourself and find a pain point, and not only is there a desire to escape, but there's also a desire to not become harsh, right, to stay soft, and... I love the little girl in the poem because she is this image of softness, Um, but the speaker is still trying to reckon with how to turn toward that softness while also surviving the world.
1: Yeah, I think that's really well put. Um, And I feel like the poem kind of captures that imagistically too, where on the one hand, the, the newscaster's voice is that unending sound that's unavoidable, and 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 then at the same time, the newspaper is what the speaker is covering, like her eyes with. The fact that the kind of the word indifferent is is what the speaker could not be is so speaks to what you were saying, where it's to be yeah to be soft while also surviving. It's yeah. Hmm.
2: And how do you not? become indifferent to some point, you know, at some point, how do you continue, how do you continue to witness? How do you continue to be awake? How do you continue to see and respond, um, and not just harden and hide. And I think part of it too, is me questioning my own privilege in this country in some ways. Um, so yes, I am a queer Arab Muslim woman, but I'm also white passing. Um, I also have economic privilege at this point in my life, though I did not grow up with that. Uh, and so how do, we, how do we navigate also our own Desires to turn away when the responsibility is that we shouldn't, we can't.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The word indifferent is such a striking one because I think, particularly in the context of self interrogation, there are so many things to be paying attention to that there are a certain number, there are only a certain number that you can fully be paying attention to at any time. And I know, I think internally it's easy to feel like. You're being indifferent, even though that's a more active kind of thing. If mm. or you can feel indifferent if you're not paying attention to everything all the time, even though that's impossible. <laughs> you know, like yeah. <laughs> there, there's only so many places that you can be giving your energy and attention and and care. It doesn't mean that you're being intentionally indifferent to something else, but there's only so many places that you can actually like really be, be fully present, and that's particularly hard internally, I think, because you know, all the things that you want to be paying attention to that you just haven't been, or can't. And yeah, that's a, that's a tough self-interrogation, I think.
2: Yeah. And the, I mean, the concept of, I think like the word indifferent, the, there's this impulse in that word too. Like, what are you indifferent to? So you, to be indifferent, you have to first be aware of something to be indifferent to. And, um, It is both impossible to be indifferent and to not be, right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, And also, like, survival, right? Like like you said, like, there's only so many places that one can be. There's only so many things that one can do. And you have to, the act of survival, right, like, forces you sometimes to step back, which I think is okay, too.
0: Yeah, definitely. And then you have to figure out how to be okay inside about it. As mm-hmm. you interrogate yourself on that, you mentioned, you know, some of your various identities which show up throughout the collection. I'm curious, in the context of self interrogation, how you see them kind of weaving through this poem.
2: Yeah, I definitely. I mean, we we talked about the yellow. You um, definitely think the the image of the newspapers or the newscasters is in it. Uh, I reported for, I would reported in my undergraduate years and through my MFA and then uh, launched into an investigative reporting project after I graduated, and when I started reporting on, I guess, heartbreak, right, whether it was evictions or infant mortality or urban renewal projects that demolished entire black neighborhoods. Um, There was a constant question as a reporter. I I didn't, I was never comfortable in that position of power which I felt like I was um, this gatekeeper of other people's stories and experiences. And the burden of, when I was reporting the burden of being a reporter, I loved talking to people I loved reporting the story. I hated writing the story because once you got to the point where you were writing, you had to then pick what gets included and what doesn't get included and how it gets included. And there's constraints and the burden of these people's lives is on your shoulders and writing can never really ever capture the full extent of somebody's life and what they're going through in a even 2,000-word story. So that that definitely comes up a lot in the collection, I think.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I'm really curious about that kind of intersection um, because as somebody who does journalism, it's something that I <laughs> feel all the time. Um, but it does show up in so many different places throughout the collection. Um, and recently, one of our uh, guess who we had on? Uh, Michael Kleber Diggs. He has several poems specifically uh, kind of interrogating news coverage of mm-hmm. police killings of uh, Black people. And I'm curious about some of the pieces that you have in this collection, uh, Good Muslims Are All Around Us, A Day of Life, that are kind of doing something similar. Um, and I'm curious how you how you kind of use poetry as a way of interrogating media or news or journalism, or how how do you see that as part of your, uh, part of your poetry and part of the collection?
2: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's funny, a lot of the, um, a lot of the newsier poems actually emerged uh, after I started the fellowship with Reveal. And uh, I think So growing up, I grew up in the U.S. post 9-11 with a father who was Palestinian, parents who are Muslim, and a father who was always watching the news, like the sound of Al Jazeera was always in our home just blaring you know my parents would fight constantly about the volume of the television and uh Mm -hmm. you could be anywhere in the house and you would you would hear the 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 hum of the the screen and, and reporters and um I would always you know I was obviously in public school and I would learn I would sit in history classes, and then I would come home, and whatever I learned in history class was always challenged by my father. Um, And so there was this alternate story that I was always getting. And as a kid, I was looking for, well, what's the right What's the right version? What's the right story? Who's not being honest? And it's not that people are dishonest, it's just different narratives. And depending on positionality, you know, people could write something in very different ways. Um, but also, that being said, there was the constant of watching Palestinians on the news and having to reckon with how they're being reported on, and then seeing my father, who was a Palestinian refugee. And there was the dichotomy of seeing Muslims on the news, and then my community being Muslim. And so those were very real contrasting images that I was receiving as a kid, and and also as an adult, right? And I'm thinking recently, um, this really came into the forefront when so I was listening to this. Uh, I listen to the daily from the New York Times every every day, for better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I I've been thinking about how the coverage of Ukraine is right. Uh, there was one episode where one of their reporters follows these um, people who are who are you know fleeing Ukraine, and they're captured with all of the dignity and respect that one who is fleeing colonization deserves, right? All of the compassion, the time, the listening ear, the gentle reporter, right? Like the the language at which we use to describe Ukrainian people as brave, which they are. And then contrast that with how we treat black people following uh, protests of police violence or Palestinians following um, airstrikes, right? And it's a it's two very different worlds and it, it really begs the question of who deserves to be seen as human and who deserves to be reported on as fully human. Um, and That was really, um, when I came in as a reporter, I was very aware in a lot of ways of that and of the, uh, the ways in which power comes into play with, with both in news stories and in newsrooms. Um, but also the, like the perspective, I think too, like a lot of people who are reporting are reporting from positions of power. So, when they are writing about someone who is perhaps not powerless, but in a place in their life where they don't have a lot of options, um, these themes start to emerge. And so, and also just questioning myself why I was in a industry that like, as in one poem, I write headlines, my people dead. So (laughs) that was a lot of (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't know where to go with that, but that's sort of what I was thinking about when I was working on these poems.
0: I think that comes through, and maybe talk through a little bit about what the poem Good Muslims Are All Around Us kind of is, because I feel like that's one where the, I don't know, I feel like that's where sort of the the repetitive cyclical nature of these narratives, and just the way that they are brought whether yeah. you're a, a conscious news consumer or a more passive news consumer, the way that they are just constantly presented to you, I feel like that poem really just draws that out so effectively.
2: Yeah, definitely. There was um so like the opposite of of dehumanizing people, and maybe like another form of dehumanizing them is over-humanizing them. And some of these like headlines that I was, I don't know what, what ended up triggering it. I saw some headline about Muslims and I was like, how many, like, how many stupid headlines about Muslims can I possibly find online? And I just (laughs) started collecting them. (laughs) Like one would collect like, like state quarters, right? Like (laughs) I would just like, I just like print them out and cut them and like, you know, aren't gluing them on a paper to see how they work together and don't. And, and the thing that really, um, the thing that really like emerged was again, like the positionality, the power dynamics, like the first one that I'd selected was blindfolded Muslim man gives free hugs in wake of Manchester city center. Like, like how could it be possible that Muslim men give hugs? Right. Like, like it's this astounding thing, like you would yep. never, <laughs> you would never write about a Christian person giving hugs, right? <laughs> it would be so odd, and it, it makes an argument that Muslims are human, which means it's arguing against the idea that Muslims are not human or not capable of of human interaction and. Um, That was part of it, and the Muslims love Jesus too, right? Like, <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: it reminds ahead, me.
0: Yeah, no, it reminds me of the you know the clip from the John McCain rally where the woman's like, a
2: "Question:
1: I do not uh, believe in. I can't trust Obama. I, I, I have read about him, and he's not. He's not. He's a. Um, he's an Arab. He is not. No." Man. no, man. no? No, man. no, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a, he's a, he's a decent family man citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with.
0: Um, no, no, no. He's a good family, family man, blah, 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 blah. And like, yes.
2: <laughs> he's, <laughs> oh my
0: God. Yeah. he's, you know, quote unquote, trying to say the right thing. And every now and then it circulates and it's like, Oh yeah, things were better back. when. it's like, no, back the fuck yes. up. This is, <laughs> I like, she's more wrong. He's
2: still very wrong. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> wild. And I'm thinking about like, I think when, when, when Hillary was Hillary Clinton was campaigning, I mean, she said something like, we need to, we need to connect to our like Muslim, I'm completely misquoting this, um, <laughs> but it's something on the wrong lines of like, I'm we need to connect to the Muslim community so that we can, like, find extremism. Of ...peace-loving Muslims living, working,
0: raising families, and paying taxes in this country. These Americans are a crucial line of defense against terrorism. They are the most likely to recognize the warning signs of radicalization before it's too late. And it's
2: like... And the yeah. best position yeah. to block it. What do you, like... Uh. <laughs> do you think that, like... I'm just gonna like WhatsApp my cousin and be like, "Yo, are you extreme?" <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> like I, you know, like the what is the opposite of this? What is this arguing against? Um, the like report says war waning in Muslim worlds, The, the idea that like there's constant war in, in Arab and Middle Eastern countries. Um, most Muslims desired, like it's, it's just, it's so outrageous. Right. And it, but it's so well intentioned at the same time. And I think that's the, that's the problem is that well-intentioned is not enough, right. There has to be thought behind it, but you need somebody in the newsroom to question that.
0: Totally. Yeah. It's well-intentioned, but it so clearly comes from being steeped in harmful narratives and Mm -hmm. is not actually questioning those. It's just trying to be nice (laughs) and that's like that's maybe a start but it isn't much of one and it's not going to get very far and there's a bunch of other stuff you need to be doing instead of being like oh my god did you know that like muslims hug people too
2: yeah what (laughs) what Did you know that they hand out a thousand holiday turkeys for families <laughs> in need?
0: Right. It's like, I feel like it's a version of the, you know, tell me you've never met a Muslim without telling me you've never met a Muslim.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that poem, um, that was a fun one to write. And it's after uh, Jillian, I think it's Weiss. It might be pronounced differently, but um, in Cyborg, she has a similar poem about uh, people with disabilities and she does sort of the same thing with the with the headlines. And I think it's really important that we pay attention to language. Um, I think it's really important that we that newsrooms think about the narratives that they're constructing around certain groups. Um and maybe perhaps what they're not constructing about other groups, <laughs> right? Oh yeah. Um yeah. And so that's a little bit about that poem.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, no, that's uh that's so well put and I I'm curious about kind of jumping off that like thinking about the book as a whole, I I was you know, it's it's broken into four sections um and there's kind of three main sections and mm-hmm. the the first section has this it's kind of these two um, I mean, there there's there's like so much in each section and in each poem, but that one two of the threads that seem um, sort of like primary in the first section are the the news poems in which you're kind of like confronting both problematic and oppressive narratives that are being put upon you by the news, um, and also your own role. As, as a reporter and kind of like re, reproducing or trying not to reproduce or be complicit. And then at the same time, um, you know, on the one hand, like you have this wonderful line um, in one of the breaking news poems uh, mm-hmm. that it's like reporting is an act of violence, poetry, one of warmth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but then at, at the same time, you don't really let poetry off the hook. There's some great, um, you know, in which the white woman on my thesis defense asked me about witness. Um, and of course, you know, fuck your lecture on craft, my people are dying. There's also the kind of institution of, of poetry in the U S and, and the, the, it's an un, often unbearable whiteness, uh, I imagine, and, um, its own kind of like oppressive sort of norms and things like that. And the first section seems to be like the speaker is sort of navigating both of those. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I guess I'm curious, like how, like a, would you sort of like complicate or add to that in any way? Um, or, you know, rebut, feel free to (laughs) say (laughs) that's totally wrong. Um, but then also like, how do you, how do you feel like each section, you know, is, is developing or or thinking about, um, its relationship to like what it's before and
2: and after and things like that. Yeah. So I jokingly refer to this book as a Gemini baby and, (laughs) um, It was both written by a Gemini. Hello. And (laughs) (laughs) Um, the publication date is May 31st. And so it also is being born during Gemini season. And I think that there is a lot of chaos in this book, um, (laughs) both like tonally and what the different sections do. And I think the one thing that sort of combines, that sort of holds the book together is it's the same fucking poet who's writing it um because like there's a lot of different themes there's themes of queerness in there there's themes of femininity there is themes of um Palestine American politics news and I don't think that I would have or could have had it any other way and I like that each poem sort of brings its own terrain and landscape to readers um, in a way that's fresh. And I hope that it comes together at the end in some way. But it's also uh I think it speaks to the different identities that we carry, right? Um, I don't personally love reading books where it's hitting sort of the same note sometimes or the same sort of topic. Um, because I know the person writing it is multidimensional, right? And this isn't to say something against like a very focused poetry collection, but um, I just, I couldn't be the person to write it. <laughs> uh, the first section, yeah, there is this like angle of news. I think that's happening and um, critiquing the institution of poetry in this country. I mean, it's very obvious that, uh how white MFAs are solely on the fact that we still do, like, the silent poetry workshops, which is incredibly oppressive for anyone who is, like, not cis, straight, and male, um, like, and also I went, I can't speak broadly about the institution of poetry in this country, but I can speak about the program that I specifically went to, which is, which was incredibly white, Um, and so I was often in classrooms with people who maybe this was the first time that they were meeting somebody that was Palestinian. Hell, maybe this was the first time that they were meeting somebody that was Muslim. Um, maybe it, they didn't really know much about Palestine and I was bringing these poems to classes. And so, uh, what thoughtful like criticism was I to generate um, and the second section is this sort of uh lyric essay of sorts um following my grandma getting her citizenship and then the third section goes into what one of my favorite professors called hymen cluster poems and <laughs> Um, It really turns inwards into thinking about queerness and sexuality and um, the violence that um, at least I faced growing up as a woman who was Arab. And so that's it's, I think, the arc of the book, I guess. <laughs> I didn't know where to go after Hyman Cluster. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's an amazing term.
2: Right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> the the first poem of the third section, I
1: was, yeah, I just uh, laughed out loud and was also not just that, but it was amazing. And I immediately showed it to my partner who was obsessed with it. Um. <laughs> No, and I I think, yeah, thank you for kind of laying that out. Um, I I do think that (laughs) that's, uh, I love that it's a Gemini baby. Um,
2: I think it's okay to like laugh at those like last poems too. Because, I mean, there's so much absurdity that the only way to sort of approach some of these topics was through humor. Um, Mm -hmm. Because at some point things are like so horrifying that they, it just becomes, the onion right
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah that's that's so interesting yeah I'm curious about that sort of the the absurdity of reality like the reality of this experience was so extreme that it becomes this kind of absurd and this absurd thing that can only be rendered with some humor uh, <laughs> I feel like that really does come through in that last section that last the third section of the last section the third section I'm curious yeah to know more about what your process was like trying to translate that absurdity
2: yeah you know we um the the most difficult part of this book aside from writing it was sequencing the poems and Mm. um there were so many there were so many different iterations and ultimately it just made sense to sort of put these poems into one section together uh but I think we 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 tried to I tried to sort of get readers tonally prepared for that humor in some poems in the first section. Um, I'm not sure if that's successful. I think it's successful in some poems and in others, it's, th- they take a more serious approach. Um, but these poems, I was, <laughs> I'm just like scrolling through the book now.
0: <laughs> what, what is one of the poems <laughs> in the first section where you think you sort of successfully seeded that element?
2: I think I tried to, um, I think there was sort of an element of absurdity in the poem that we talked about with the headlines, good Muslims are all around us. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it shows up a little bit in broken light bulb flickering away. And the, I think the last poem of the section is the one, um, there's poem in which my feelings fuck each other into more feelings. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. All my plants are dead. That one a little bit. So there was like a constant push and pull in the book of like absurdity. And then like this real, like serious tone. Um, but I think that, I mean, when I, I think it's like, if you, I think it's difficult to connect to one's body when everyone sort of has a stake in it right like it's difficult to talk about the body it's difficult to be connected to the body and I think it was really difficult for me to write these poems in the way with all the violence that they hint at Um, and also some of these topics were just so outrageous you know So the only way I could really do it, I felt like, was just, let's just lean into the chaos of this and make it a punchline. And I think people still got the point.
1: Yeah. No, I, thank you. That's, I, I think they are um, just amazing. Um, And I've never, this is like the most minor and not important points, but the way you use like uh question marks and exclamation points is so oh my good god, i
2: love a good exclamation point oh my
1: god it's yeah but yeah it's yeah you just you it's like yeah that's what that that's what they do that's what you're anyway um i also think uh, there's an there's an extent to which yeah the in the first section the self-portrait
2: Mhm. Yeah, I was um, just thinking about
1: that too. Yeah. Um Yeah, and it it just I don't know, it it's 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 an amazing it incorporates so much like um uh, vernacular is not even I mean it's kind of that but it's just like mm-hmm. the weird shit that people say that's also terrible a lot of the time and then all yeah. this stuff and um but the way you've like arranged it, it's, I don't know. It's, it's always like the mark of, I'm just like, Oh my God, this poet is the best when I'm like laughing in one second. And then I'm like, just like my heart is broken in the next. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just feel like your poems are holding all of that. Um, and yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, the only (laughs) that poem, um, that poem got like taken out of the book and then placed back into the book and then taken out and then placed back in like so many times and really I did because this is actually this poem is the oldest poem in the collection um oh. and I think that it is a very young poem um hmm. and but I also I mean like what you said, like there's the points where I'm messing with the punctuation and the capitalization. And I had a lot of fun with writing this poem, but also like on a more serious note, the only way that I survived uh, the high school that I went to was um, through humor. Right. Like Mm -hmm. if I could, if I could laugh when somebody literally asked me if my dad is Osama bin Laden, then I could rather than be enemies with that person, maybe we could be friends Mm. or if I could, um, like I was legitimately for four years, like people joked and would call me a terrorist. Right. This was like,
1: Jesus Christ! Okay. Yeah,
2: i graduated high school in 2013 so i started in 2009 and this was so this was obama years when everyone thought we were like post-racial and past oh, racism and also like in the like height of you know obama's trying to like capture osama bin laden and then he did right like all of this stuff was happening and it was in the high school and the, everyone in high school was like really really white and um so there was a lot like politically happening and then there were these walls of these high school classrooms and how that was all sort of playing out in these everyday interactions and um that was the only way that I could like really get through it right it was just laughing and being the like laid-back person who didn't take offense to that stuff and um that's it right
0: <laughs> yeah now I the stories I have a few friends who have very similar stories from their high school years in, uh, actually one of them in Ohio, just like mm-hmm. the wildly fucked up stuff that they would hear from classmates daily about, mm-hmm. you know, do you know, princess Jasmine, all this.
2: Yeah. Like Edward yeah. Said is like rolling in his grave. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh my God. <laughs> absolutely like, no i mean <laughs> the, you want
2: to see like orientalism like oh my god
0: yeah for real <laughs> oh my god wow yeah yeah i yeah i mean the post 9/11 everything about about everything in america basically um i got my school id taken away and was almost suspended for not standing during the pledge of allegiance cuz i was mad about the invasion of iraq <laughs> yep My first day of high school, the security guard like comes over because I'm not standing up. He's like, give me your ID. I'm like, what? (laughs) Man. Uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Do you ever think about like, we had to stand every single morning in front of the flag and like sing, like chant the pledge of allegiance. Like that's really weird. Right.
0: So weird. Think about it all the time. (laughs) All the time. Yeah. All the weird jingoistic stuff was, I mean, it's like, people now even like if there's a fairly mainstream take developing that like oh hmm, maybe that was a little extreme and like i i talk sometimes with folks who like weren't really super aware post 9-11 and like the things that i you know like hey did you know that for like several weeks everybody just had flags on their cars like mm-hmm. just had them in their back windows like everybody did it <laughs> like people think that you're like they they don't believe you <laughs> Yeah. And then you show them pictures or like, Hey, did you know that there were actually a bunch of protests in support of the Iraq war, even though like the president and both houses of Congress were in Republican hands and it was absolutely going to happen, but yeah. still like thousands of people gathered in Washington at pro-war like, yeah. rallies. Cause they were mad at the liberals.
2: Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, in, it's so, it's so wild. And like, I mean, it makes me think about like during the pandemic when people were protesting masks, right. And, and continue to protest masks. Like, yeah you would have these huge rallies and, um, yeah, the things that, that people will outrageously get upset over completely like forgetting or refusing to acknowledge, like there are real things that you can be outraged about that are worth your time.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that are like
2: worth standing out in the like rain for six hours for.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. When a lot of times those are the, the gatherings and the movements that don't get as much. attention. Yeah. You know, not to get all, you know, Oh, the lame stream media doesn't want you to know about like corpos don't want you to know, but like, One of the largest (laughs) protest movements in the history of the world was the actions globally against the war in Iraq. Like, that was one of the largest single days of protest in history. Millions of people all around the world gathered to protest that war from like Rome to Raleigh, North Carolina. And I don't think that that's a generally (laughs) known piece of information.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. Wow. I mean,
0: the scale of the protests in opposition to the Iraq war are like truly staggering um but you know we still went to war so uh
2: where do we go from here (laughs) oh god
0: (laughs) um if only well i did
1: now that you gosh i've been thinking about uh the pledge of allegiance that was making me think about the the last very last uh, poem of the book which is also in its own section which mm-hmm. um, and I don't want to be like too gushy so just if I'm too then just you know it's fine but this poem I think is gonna haunt me forever um, and it's like so so good um, but it yeah it's called Pledging Allegiance and it's, it's like three pages um and it's like prose prose poetry and i guess i was wondering i mean there's like so many parts about about it that i that are like fascinating that i love um but one of the parts that i was thinking about a lot is just the very beginning where it starts i am tired of language i don't want to make metaphors um and I don't know. I guess I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that poem and like, um, especially because, you know, so much of the book is, you know, there's kind of like poetry and, um, reporting and I don't know when you hit that. I don't like, I'm tired of language. There's this yeah, just this sense of exhaustion with the whole endeavor. Um, Yeah. And I'm just, I'm curious about everything about it. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) Sorry.
2: (laughs) No, no, you're right. I mean, uh, I, I think the like amount of energy I started when I started writing this book versus the energy I had when I finished it, (laughs) And then like the, the state of the world too. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess we could say I started the book maybe like the first year of my MFA, though none of those poems made it in and none of them made it in from the second year really either. And it was the third year, but the third year was the end of 2019, 2020 pandemic. Mm -hmm. And throughout that time, you know, like Trump presidency, the pandemic, like all of this stuff sort of happened and i had i just remember like being deeply exhausted. Like a lot of people were and you know there was that there was that sweet i mean i don't want to call it sweet cuz i don't want to capture it in a positive way, but in march 2020 everyone stopped. Like the Mm -hmm. world stopped and there was this shift where everyone was sort of evaluating if you had the privilege to not go to work where you were evaluating your commitments. And so that's, that's part of it, that tiredness, but then also with language specifically, it's this, um, when I was reporting the thing that depressed me the most was that I constantly wondered about the lifespan of an article and how far it would reach and how far it could reach and whether it could do something. And it's not that I don't believe in the power of words, but that there's so many, there's so much being outputted constantly and nothing happening And that's frustrating. And then to be a person who's both at this point was reporting and so like outputting in that way, like, you know, sad news and then also writing poems about sad shit. Um, And then like the state of the world felt like it just, as I kept writing, the state of the world just kept getting worse. (laughs)
1: Like, (laughs) you you
2: know, and so I, Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And that, that's kind of why, like, I left, I left reporting. And and honestly, like, I just got back into writing poems, but probably between like, we're in 2022, like last May until like, February, I just wasn't writing anything. um, Because I just felt so like, what is the point of this, which is like, a bad place to be. And there is like, there's value in language outside of it, doing something. There is value in creating there's value in writing and being in touch with yourself. And obviously that impacts the world. But when I was in the thick of it, I couldn't see it that way. And, Mm. um, That's why we ended, I don't know, that's why I ended the book that way. Keep saying we like there was someone else working (laughs) on (laughs) this. I think I'm trying to like distance myself from writing it a little bit, but um
1: you can say we if if that feels right.
0: You know, yeah. Yeah, I mean it open as as we know it opens with the self-interrogation. So I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of voices going on. (laughs)
2: Um yeah, I don't know. And I, I, I do like this poem too, and it does um does call back to ancestors and trying to connect with them with that last line um trying to write to them and for them and with them
1: yeah it's it's a it's a beautiful and um all the adjectives will fail but it's a, it's a it's a beautiful and painful ending um and powerful because there's this you have this kind of it's like I'm locked out of my home. there's this there's this home that's kind of, you know, a metaphor for something, although I guess you're tired of metaphors, um, but it seems figurative in in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then it's, I don't know, like the ghosts laugh, their their laughs end with a sharp pang of grief. It sounds like a fist. hand around my throat i reach for them begging to be let in when i ring the door but when i ring the bell no one answers i draw letters on the outside of the door um yeah i don't know it's um it's just yeah there's a lot there um but it's it's like it really sticks with you and i and i feel like there's this i don't i'm gonna misquote him but there was this like i think it was with david Nayman in his podcast between the covers and he interviewed mm. um philip metris and he he was philip metris was talking about truth and like he said this one thing that was very academic that I am forgetting now. And then he said this other thing that was like (laughs) (laughs) the same thing, but not, but like poetic. Uh, And it was like, um, it was how poetry basically like lays the ground for truth or something Mm -hmm. like that. It's not truth itself, but it kind of, It Mm. like makes the space for it, I suppose. Um, And I and I feel like something that that it seemed like this book was wrestling with a little bit was there's, you know, the reporting has the kind of especially when, you know, when it's like in the kind of most industry type thing, Mm -hmm. it's like facts and info and it's the truth. Um, but then poetry, you know, as that line from the earlier poem, one of warmth, it's the thing that opens one to it. Um, like, and, and, and yeah, and it, it does feel like it calls back to the, the girl in self-interrogation inter- and that, um, how the speaker couldn't be indifferent that it's like the, the, that arresting. mm mm-hmm reading of the poem is like what opens the person like you up to feeling that the truth of the moment or whatever it is um and it it just feels like at the end there there's that there's like a longing for for that or that connection to i mean to the ghost to the ancestors as as you were saying um i don't i there's i don't even know if there's a question in there but um <laughs> I, no I, just... I love
2: it. You're like writing a live <laughs> review right now.
1: <laughs> I just I yeah, well, I am <laughs> this poem is it's it's so good and so I am I'm just going to be thinking about it for forever. So um
2: No, these are I mean, I you make a lot of great points and I think I think there is the word that you described was longing um I, I definitely, um, there is a lot of longing in this poem and I think like a poem or a book is ultimately like a love letter to the world as flawed as it is to our ancestors, our people, our communities. And, you know, I'm in such a different place than my ancestors, like both physically and as a person and economically and you know there's always that distance because of war and colonization and and mm-hmm. so i don't know i think about like would if they saw me on the streets right like would they recognize me and would we be able to communicate and what would that you know what would that look like
1: yeah that reminds me of the um you know the poet christy passion i don't um we recently talked about one of her poems she's she's based in hawaii and she's in there's this great book then norton they just came out with like um, an anthology of like native poetry of the americas um, oh, cool. and like joy harjo kind of was the primary editor and producer of it um, and so I was and it there's never been like a kind of comprehensive one before I think it just came out last year um, oh. so I, I, I found her in that and but the end of the the end of that poem she's like this she's like on the highway and then she kind of hears something that reminds her of her grandmother and she kind of is like transported in the memory um, but then it ends like, uh, and Tutu is like the, how she addresses her mm. grandmother, but she's like, um, you know, my hand is out. My plate is empty. Tutu, do you know my name? Like, mm-hmm. do you know my name? Um, beautiful. And yeah, what you were saying just felt like it resonated. He's, uh, yeah,
2: I would, I would love to please link me to that.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Apology after. Yeah, I'll send it for sure. Do you think maybe we should
0: read the poem again? I think we should hear it again. Yeah, we've we've talked about the end of the collection. I think it's a good time to <laughs> head back to the beginning and, and feel all the connections running throughout.
2: Let's do it. Self-interrogation. At the airport terminal, a woman is crying. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, I... Need to focus on something besides the rush of migration, the light so loud, the unending sound of a newscaster's voice. Dear God, dear Bones, dear Mother, please forgive me. I want to call in dead. Last week, there was a child in a yellow dress reading a poem. For minutes on end, I could not be indifferent to anything, not the grass dying yellow not the bombs twisting limbs, not the cages, not the yes. There is a woman crying at terminal six. Yes. I use a newspaper to cover my eyes. Yes. I think of the child, the tiny silver heart she placed in my palm, how I threw it in the trash seconds later. But I promise, I promise, I promise. I meant it as an act of survival. Maybe love. Thank you both.
0: Thank you. Thank Um, you. Obviously, you know, quick reminder again and plug again. The book, Dear God, Dear Bones, Dear Yellow, that features this poem uh, is coming out May 31st from Haymarket Books. Be sure to order your copy as soon as humanly possible. Um Obviously that's recommended, but, uh, before we let you go, nor do you have any recommendations for reading, watching or listening for our good listeners?
2: Oh my goodness. So I just watched this movie called beginners. It was excellent. Um, I think it came out in 2011 and I love the, uh, directors, Mike Mills, his, uh, just the way he captures family in this movie is beautiful. And what am I reading? What did I just finish? I'm in love with the fact that the minute I went to grab this book, I didn't know where it was. Um, It's the Sunflower (laughs) Cast a Spell to Save Us from the Void by Jackie Wang. So that's the most recent um, book I read. And I, I mean, the absurdity in that book the surrealism the like the sharpness of the language in it is stunning and so um and the reason I picked it up I will be so you know obvious is that it had a sunflower in the title and also (laughs) the, the fucking title is so good
0: It is really good. I
2: I saw that title and I was like, why didn't I come up with that title? (laughs) (laughs) Like, goddamn. Yeah, that
1: was was it was uh, a finalist for the national book award or
2: something.
0: I feel like that's. I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh,
1: I've been meaning to read that. Thank you for reminding me about it.
2: Really, really good.
1: Amazing.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, not only for those recommendations, but obviously for sharing your poetry and your time. This has been really wonderful.
2: Anytime. Yeah, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness that both of you brought and your questions and commentary. And um, it was a really, really good time. So thanks.
0: Wonderful. You are welcome back literally anytime. Connor oh you know you know what I'm you know what I'm gonna ask you
1: oh boy Uh, what
0: what about what about you what have you been reading watching listening to experiencing
1: well first I mean we have plugged it once or twice or many times but plugging it again please do get a copy of Dear God Dear Bones Dear Yellow by Noor Hindi it's really 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 good um truly excellent yeah well you know what here's the thing i'll go out and i'll say it i've just started it so it's early and the book is big you may have heard of it but it's called braiding sweetgrass it's by robin wall kimmerer it came out i think quite several years ago but It recently kind of re-blew up. Um, And Robin Wall Kimmerer is, you know, this is like the blur, but is a mother, a scientist, decorated professor, and enrolled member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation. Um, And she's a botanist. um, And so it's kind of like a book about well, I'll just read this because this puts it much better than what I would say. Um, She embraces the notion that plants and animals are our oldest teachers. Um, And so she brings these lessons of knowledge together to show that the awakening of a wider ecological consciousness requires the acknowledgement and celebration of our reciprocal relationship with the rest of the living world. Um, And so it's kind of, threading um, the the science of botany with um, kind of like her like indigenous Potawatomi um, knowledge Um, and it's sort of using all of that to think about a way that um you know especially kind of in the in the face of you know climate catastrophe we can reorient um you know to a um like a a healthy and reciprocal that that's a good word like relationship with the world yeah and i i've only just started it but it's It's, um, yeah, it's really good. Um, and it's very poetic as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good book for, for poetry lovers. Um, and
0: yeah. Um, yeah,
1: I would, I would recommend Braiding Sweetgrass.
0: Very cool. That sounds really, really good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, it had been a book. It is published by Milkweed, which is based in the Twin Cities. And I had kind of known about it for a long time and um, finally picked it up and was like mad, basically, that I had <laughs> waited as long as I did. Yeah, <laughs> it was like staring at me on the shelf, braiding sweetgrass.
0: Um, Jack,
1: what about you? What have you been reading, watching, listening to, taking in?
0: Well, I'll tell you, I'm pretty late to the party on this one. But uh, as a result of my current Hulu subscription, which I don't usually have, uh, (laughs) I am finally watching a show that similar I've wanted to watch basically since it started coming out. But I didn't have access to it and I wasn't quite ready to, you know, pay for Hulu for a while just for that. Uh, Killing Eve. It's great. I love it. It's so good. It's Every like weird, murdery, everything that I want. Sandra O oh is like totally captivating and magnetic as always. Jody Comer is incredible as the international assassin Villanelle. Uh, <laughs> poetry. Poetry. Uh, poetry connection. Her assassin name's a poem form. <laughs> And there's lots of great accents in it because the she's this international murderess, and so she's like <laughs> bonjour, je m'appelle Villanel, or she's like where are you, Yves Polastri? It's amazing, like oh oh, I'm so I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to bump into you just now. Like fucking brilliant chameleon, Jodie Comer has incredible range, and there's a lot of amazing eye acting, and so does Sandra Owen oh and it's just so good. Um, really enjoying it. It's like arty, but pulpy. And the soundtrack is really good too. Uh, yeah, I'm just fully, it's as good as I thought it was going to be. And I've been anticipating it being really good basically since I first found out about it whenever it started coming out like four or five years ago. So absolutely loving Killing Eve.
1: I am so happy for you, Jack. This is a great thing. Um, it's great when it lives up to the hype because it's so hard for things when, especially when it's like it has all the hype ever, you know, it's like so hard. Ad, I for mean, anything, pr- particularly yeah. for
0: folks who like, you know, I like my British mysteries, I like my murder <laughs> mysteries, I like my international <laughs> spy capers. Like, this yeah. is. You yeah. know, targeted at me as a media consumer, and all the people who were raving about it are like, if you like this thing, you're gonna love killing Eve. And so <laughs> I was like, it was hyped to high heaven and hyped specifically towards me. And yeah, it's living up to it big time. It's also just hilarious to have Sandra O just be like super frazzled. Like Eve is just frazzled a lot. She's so good at that. She's and then,
1: very frazzled. And yeah. you've
0: got this you know international murderess who is like unfrazzleable, yeah and it's just like you know weird and calm and detached and put together all the time right doing her weird stuff it's just it's such a fun contrast god i love it
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely amazing yeah killing eve killing eve
0: Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossiter-Munnley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter-Munn, connor is at connor m stratton and the show is at close talking you can also find us on instagram at close talking poetry or on facebook at facebook.com slash close talking see you next time